what's the relationship between God's beauty and God's majesty? And isn't beauty just in the eye of the beholder? These are things that we're going to talk about today on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, April the 15th of 2009. Happy Tax Day, and welcome, everybody. I'm your host, as always, Toby Logsdon. So glad to have you here along with us. And first of all, you guys are probably wondering, where were you on Monday? Well, on Monday, I actually got a whole bunch of uh, these books. Um, This pastor who recently uh, retired, or retired in the last 10 or so years, he's got this huge library of all these books that were, um, you know, in his library while he was a pastor, and uh, he has given them all to me. Uh, And man, I'm I'm flattered and humbled and uh, excited as can be, because a lot of these books... Uh, were printed before 1900. I mean, these are really old books, and some of the pages are are, are really fragile and really brittle. But uh, I'm going to take good care of these books. But anyway, uh, Monday kind of got away from me, if I'm being honest. But we will resume our study in Romans next week, and it is going to be a good lesson. So make sure you guys stick around for that. One announcement i got to get out of the way here before we get started with our lesson here in our Knowing God series, and that is that I believe that we're going to be moving our Wednesday lessons to Thursdays, and that's because starting next week, we're going to be doing a, uh, a study here in the North Arkansas area on 12 steps to proving that Christianity is true. And what we're hoping to accomplish through this study is, first of all, to find people who are interested in joining the church that we're going to be planting, and second of all, we're looking for leadership uh, to join along with us. So I figure if we do a, a really intensive apologetic study, you know, somebody who's serious about their faith is going to show up. So anyway, we've been advertising on uh, on Facebook this week, and for um, and f- for the last three days, we've had advertisements on the on the you know on the screen, and we've had about twenty five thousand impressions, meaning it's shown up on twenty five thousand screens just here in the northwest Arkansas area. So hopefully we'll have a pretty good turnout for this study that we'll be doing. But anyway, that's going to be on Wednesdays that we're going to be doing this study. And so I'm going to be probably moving the apologetics lessons that we do here on BibleStudyPodcast.org to Thursdays. So anyway, if you don't see anything on Wednesday next week, you'll understand why. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Father God, it's just so awesome to uh, to open up your word and to learn more about you and to worship you, not only with all of our heart and all of our souls, but also with our minds, Lord. It's an awesome experience. Lord, I pray that this day will be blessed, that this time will be blessed, and that we can learn more about you so that we can love you more than we ever have before. Help us to glorify you, Lord, because of our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, as we've gone through our study 
of the attributes of God in, in, this, uh, in this series, each and every one thus far of the attributes that we've covered has been able to kind of stand on its own. While they each flow naturally and logically from one another, none of them have been as inseparably linked as the two attributes of God that we'll be covering in this lesson, God's majesty and God's beauty. Well, his majesty can partially be attributed to his beauty, and his beauty can partially be attributed to his majesty. I mean, they're, they're pretty closely connected. But, you know, not all things which are beautiful are majestic, but all majestic things are beautiful. So that is the one difference between those two things. And for that reason, we can't really study one without the other. So we'll first cover God's majesty, and then we'll move on to God's beauty. Well, as always, let's go ahead and start with developing a working definition of what majesty is. When we refer to something being majestic, we think of something big, something authoritative, imposing, and maybe even sovereign. Uh, Because there are so many words which can be equated with the term majesty, there are actually several Hebrew words that might be used in reference to God's majesty found in the Bible. Words such as excellence, or splendor, or glory, exaltation, greatness, awesomeness, majesty, things like that. And in the New Testament, we find that there are really only two terms which, uh, which refer explicitly to God's majesty, each of which begins with the prefix mega, which of course means something big. So thus, based on the terms used in scripture in reference to God's majesty, we might come up with a definition which goes something like this. God's majesty just basically refers to his awesomeness, his infinite greatness, his infinite glory, and the fact that he alone is worthy of worship and exaltation. Well, we find God's majesty throughout Scripture, but nowhere in the whole Bible do we find it more clearly and more beautifully communicated than in the Psalms. And by the way, if you ever want to do a study on God's attributes, a really um, Bible-centered study on God's attributes, go through the Psalms and see which of God's attributes you can find, because they're in almost every single Psalm. But anyway, uh, Psalm chapter 8, verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, which has displayed your splendor above the heavens. Psalm chapter 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Psalm chapter 24 verse 28 says, Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Psalm uh, chapter 29 verses 1 and 2 say, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Psalm chapter 57 verse 5 says, Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Psalm chapter 66 verse 2 says, Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. In Psalm chapter 76, verse 4, it says, You are resplendent, more majestic than the mountains of prey. Psalm chapter 93, verse 1 says, The Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Psalm chapter 96, verse 3 says, Tell of his glory among the nations, his wondrous deeds among all the peoples. Psalm chapter 97, verse 6 says, The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people have seen his glory. Psalm chapter 104 verse 31 says, Let the glory of the Lord endure 
forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Psalm chapter 145 verse 5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Man, I could just read this stuff all day because this is just really inspiring stuff. I love this stuff. But uh, but yeah, the Psalms are full of references to God's majesty. God's majesty is clearly portrayed, you know, throughout the whole Bible, but here's a small sampling of uh, of what we can find in the Psalms, and this is just a small sampling. But anyway, uh, as with every other attribute of God that we've studied thus far, God's majesty logically flows from some of his other attributes. First of all, God's majesty flows logically from his infinite nature. When we behold an ocean, or a big mountain, or the universe even, you know, something that seems incredibly, unbelievably large, you know, we might refer to that thing as majestic. Well, because God is infinite, all we can do is stand in awe of his awesomeness. God's majesty also flows naturally from his omni-attributes, his omnipotence, his omni-benevolence, which is his all-loving nature, which we'll cover uh, when we get to it, Uh, (laughs) his omniscience, his omnipresence. You know, these all lead to the conclusion that God is majestic. This is all beyond our ability to fully comprehend, which is what makes God just majestic beyond our wildest imagination. And as we noted at the beginning of this lesson, God's majesty is also connected to his beauty as well, which we're going to be covering here in just a moment. But, you know, as one might expect, theologians from uh, throughout the ages have declared God's majestic nature. Uh, Perhaps none so clearly as Thomas Aquinas, who wrote that, quote, the first distinction in matters of faith in that some concern the majesty of the Godhead, while others pertain to the mystery of Christ's human nature, which is the mystery of godliness. Aquinas also wrote that, quote, every divine excellency is included in his majesty, to which it pertains we should be made happy in him as in sovereign good. End quote. John Calvin also wrote that, quote, He holds the whole universe in his grasp and rules it by his power. The effect of the expression, therefore, is the same as if it had been said that he is of infinite majesty, incomprehensible essence, boundless power, and eternal duration. Jonathan Edwards wrote that, quote, He is of infinite greatness, majesty, and glory, and therefore he is infinitely honorable. Uh, while there are some objections to God's majesty, which, you know, we usually, uh, you know, cover all this stuff and then cover the objections, and there are some objections to God's majesty, but those objections are really more pointed toward God's beauty. So at this point, let's go ahead and move on to defining and discussing and defending God's beauty. Well, as with the attribute of majesty, God's beauty is communicated through several terms, such as good or splendorous or lovely, delightful, and of course, the word beautiful. Uh, Something that's beautiful is defined as something which is pleasing to perceive. Something that's pleasing to perceive. So when we speak of God being beautiful, we're referring to the infinite goodness of God that causes a finite being to become just absolutely overwhelmed with pleasure. And of course, the scriptures do proclaim God's 
beauty throughout, but nowhere more eloquently or more beautifully than the Psalms. In Psalm chapter 27, verse 4, it says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Psalm chapter 96, verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Psalm chapter 111, verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Psalm chapter 119, verse 174 says, I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. Now again, God's beauty is inseparably linked to his majesty. Everything that is majestic has an element of beauty to it. Well, God is infinitely majestic, and so thus he is also infinitely and incomprehensibly beautiful as well. And further, the fact that there is beauty in creation also means that God must be beautiful. Creation as a whole is an effect, and an effect can't have a perfection within it that was not also in its cause. In other words, God can't give something which he himself doesn't have or doesn't possess. And so therefore, God is necessarily beautiful since creation has beautiful elements or beautiful aspects to it. The implication here is that all beauty flows from God's nature and being since all effects necessarily pre-exist in their cause. And in fact, the reason we won't sin in heaven is because we'll finally behold his beauty. We'll finally perceive his beauty. One of the most common questions I come upon is something like this, you know, how can we be free in heaven and yet not sin? I mean, if we're free, then we have the ability to sin, right? Well, the answer is that freedom, true freedom, isn't having the ability to sin. It's being free from the ability to sin. It's being free from sin. How exactly is that going to work? Well, it's called the beatific vision. The Bible teaches that no person can see God's face, right? I mean, Moses requested to see God's face, and he was denied. However, once we're resurrected and given glorified bodies, we'll see God. We'll see God in our glorified bodies. And, you know, John wrote of this. He wrote in Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, he said, quote, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And then John also wrote that, quote, When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And so thus, God is so infinitely beautiful and majestic that when we finally do see him, we will become like him. Therefore, we will be free from sin, not free to sin. We'll become like him in that we are free from sin. When Paul wrote of this future experience, he wrote that, quote, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 10 to 12. So we'll be set free from sin, not only because our glorified bodies will no longer have our sin nature dragging us down any longer, but also because God is so beautiful that once we see him, will never be tempted to look away or to turn away from him again.
As Dr. Geisler says in his book, quote, No mountain, however grand, no rainbow, however bright, and no sunset, however blazing, will compare with this infinite blast of ultimate beauty, end quote. So that answers one tough question for us about, you know, what we're going to be like in heaven or why we won't sin in heaven. But this doesn't really answer some of the more common objections that get raised when we speak of God's majesty or beauty. And the first objection is something like this. You know, if everything which is majestic is also beautiful, then all we have to do is deny that God is beautiful in order to deny his majesty. After all, as the modern slogan goes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder right? So this objection really boils down to the relative nature of beauty. What's beautiful for one person might not be beautiful to every other person. Well, in response, we must first note that there are actually two aspects pertaining to beauty. First is the admirable, which is the objective uh, aspect of beauty. And then there's the enjoyable, which is the subjective aspect of beauty. Well, all things which are admirable are enjoyable, but things which are enjoyable are not necessarily admirable. And so thus, beauty is absolute, but a person may not enjoy that which is beautiful. Is it possible to not enjoy a beautiful sunset over the ocean? Sure, it's possible not to enjoy you know something that scenic. You know, you, you hook electrodes to a person and give them a jolt of electricity through their body every time they look at the sunset, and I can guarantee you, you know, practically it won't even take a hundred shocks before they never want to look at a sunset again. In fact, they very likely may even come to hate the sight of the sun setting from that day forward. But they don't hate it because it's not admirable. They hate it because they associate it with something not enjoyable to them. A person who hates that which is beautiful may enjoy the destruction or the desecration of that beautiful thing so much that they convince themselves that the desecration of that beautiful thing is itself a beautiful act. However, the fact that they enjoy it so thoroughly doesn't make the desecration of that beautiful thing actually beautiful. And that's why art, which attempts to desecrate God, seems beautiful or or, uh, is apparently beautiful only to those who hate God. And further, it's worth noting that psychological studies have demonstrated that people around the world recognize beauty transculturally. There are certain things that everybody finds beautiful. And finally, the fact that we consider some things to be more beautiful than others demonstrates that beauty is actually objective. It's not subjective. Ultimately, God's beauty is the standard by which all beauty is judged. Just like we can't know what is morally wrong without some objective moral standard, we can't know what is beautiful without an objective standard by which we can measure it. So in both cases, whether it's uh, you know something that's morally right or wrong, or whether it's something that's beautiful or not beautiful, the objective standard is found in God. Now, a second objection goes something like this. If God is all-powerful and beautiful, and if God, as the cause of creation, can only give creation that which he himself possesses, then why is there so much ugliness in the world? In response, let's go ahead and clarify, first of all, that when we use the term ugliness in this context, it's actually referring to sin and to the effects of sin. God didn't make the world with sin in it, however. Rather, He made it perfectly, but he gave humanity free will, and this freedom allowed for humanity to make the world an ugly place or to preserve its perfect beauty. 
Well, as we see, you know, as we know, humanity chose to make it ugly by choosing sin over obedience. And so thus God isn't responsible for the world being ugly. He's only responsible for the beautiful aspects of the world being in the world. And secondly, by noting that the world is an ugly place, the person who's raising this objection is necessarily implying that there's an objective standard for measuring beauty. And we would have no concept of ugliness unless we first knew what beauty is. And so thus, this argument ultimately implies that God exists and that he's beautiful and majestic. So that answers that objection. If you guys have any other objections that you come across or that maybe you even have, you know, go ahead and get those over to me. My email is cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. I'd be glad to try to help you out with that. But, uh, man, this is probably my favorite lesson that we've done in this series so far. I think all of us, as God's children, understand how beautiful he is because uh, he's given us a taste of that in the forgiveness and the grace that he's given us. Uh, For the person who has turned their back on God, of course they can't see how beautiful he is, but he is beautiful. Anyway, like I said, if you guys have any questions, get them over to me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. So anyway, thank you guys so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a para-ministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus.